0: everyone, and welcome to the 428th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason, and I'm joined by my co-host, Abe. Abe, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing good. You know, normally, Spencer's here. He is gone for one more week, but then he is back for a huge chunk of time. The finalist, like, you know, he's got the brand new job, and so he's having to go and do some training stuff at the company, so he couldn't do this here today. But after this, he should be back for a long time. Normally, at the beginning of the show, I like to ask the co-host a question just so the listeners can get the voices separated. But I'm still going to ask you for the sake of tradition, baby. And uh, what's your favorite soft drink? Favorite soft drink? Is that just sodas? Is that really the? Yeah, I mean, like you, you can say root beer. Root beer is not like a soda, soda, but it's like a soft drink. It's got the bubbles. If your drink has little bubbles, okay. My favorite carbonated <laughs> beverage. Yeah,
1: I'm actually I don't drink a lot of soda anymore these days. I used to be a really big Dr Pepper guy, mm-hmm. and I also love a good orange soda. So. I think if I had to choose between the two, if I could, like, have one right now,
0: be orange soda. So let's go with that. I like that answer. Dr. Howard's got 23 flavors. Spencer is gone, but we do have a special guest this week again, Abe. We have Jesse Robkin from the NRG series, the point leader for season two. And I believe the number one of the year right now. As well, she is guesting on the show to talk to you about improving in magic and as well as the BNR. So we're going to be sure to talk about that exciting news later in the episode with her it's gonna be super fun but first abe we need to do always improving it is the main point of the show you know if you're not improving you're kind of just not giving it all i'm there's always something to be working on no matter how good you are my always improving moment from this week really comes from a lot of today of just sort of like identifying problems and trying to solve them so as we'll talk about later in the show yorian is banned in modern and that has really big implications for me. You know, my bank account so much lighter now, Abe, my win rates going down. I have all these problems I got to solve, but more, more realistically, a lot of people message me about four color. And it's like, Oh, what would you do with four color? What would you do with this? And it's like, okay, what were the strengths of this deck? And like identifying that for people. And then now trying to account for them. So like a big example is winning the game is a serious problem with four color. You typically did it most often was just a four or five hitting them. And it would just hit them like three times. And, that was honestly enough. But now that we've lost that forever four or five, how do we sort of win games? And so I've been having to look at four color and build it in a completely different way than I have been before and trying to solve for that and work through those problems. And so that was really my always improving moment today was like figuring out, okay, what were really the good things about this deck? Take that into like the smaller deck version and now solve for this new problem and move forward with that. So that was my always improving moment.
1: That's really good. And I think that, you know, something that, is just a constant of magic. Is that things change, and every time there's a change like that, there's a lot of opportunity to learn what is actually changing. You know what the actual impacts of those things are outside of like, okay, no one can play Yorion decks anymore. It's like, well, what does that actually mean? You know, how does that how does that apply itself? And that can be like a huge a huge opportunity to learn. My always improving moment this week is something that might be a little out there, but it applies to like how I'm start going to start thinking about what it is that i'm doing in magic a lot more often it's a way to like put an idea that i think is really important into words and this came from a conversation i was having with my long-time friend and magic mentor jonathan sukenik shout out to the Watch Wolf 92 about the word credence in philosophy that i had Well, we're i was we had like a get together over the weekend really great to spend some time with them we were just talking about like games and stuff and like ideas and This idea of credence and what it means, like philosophically compared to probability. So I don't want to get too in the weeds, but basically the difference is that when you actually talk about it in philosophy, if I were to roll a die and ask you, you know, Mason, this six-sided die I just rolled, my hand is covering it. What is the probability it's a six? One in six. See. That's what that's what like most people say, but to like from a philosophical standpoint, it's actually zero or one right? As soon as I lift my hand, it either is sitting on the six or it's not. Mm-hmm. The credence is what is it that you believe the odds are right like w- what is your belief of this being like a six? And you're like, well, I any mean, a logical credence would be that it's a six and not like one sixth of the time because there are six outcomes, but in reality, it is just those two outcomes. So where that matters to me and how I'm applying it to magic is thinking about when I am looking at the decisions I've made or like looking at, you know, evaluating between two things, you know, where is it that my credence is landing that's different than the reality, right? Like for me to play optimally or be thinking about things correctly, it's very important that the, like my credence is... Accurate to the logical probability, right? Like if I'm if I'm looking at a hand and I'm like, well, I should mulligan this because like my sixes are better. This percentage of the time is what it feels like, and that's my credence. Making sure that those are the things I'm working on understanding better, and those are things I'm I'm like evaluating while also evaluating the math of those situations, right? Like knowing what the actual odds are that I'm drawing a land. If I think I'm more likely to draw land or feel like I'm more likely to draw land in any given moment than I actually am when I'm keeping some risky hand and like. A draft or a game of Magic in general, like I am going to make a worse play, and in general, being able to talk about things like, okay, what is it that you felt here? What influenced you from going like, okay, I just felt like my opponent had this. What is it that made it so that was your credence as opposed to like, what were the odds of it? Is something that I'm going to really try to update for myself as a result of like being introduced to that idea, and I think it's something that is like pretty out there, and I don't know. I said I wasn't going to get too deep into it, but but pretty deep into it. But I I think it's something that really will help me in better evaluating and understanding my own play and like having a better framework for enabling myself to improve.
0: How do you think that affects things like deck selection and metagaming, quote unquote?
1: So I think that overall, the idea doesn't really it, right, it doesn't affect anything per se like mm-hmm. me knowing that now doesn't actually change the way that i'm going to like choose decks mm-hmm. what it can do though is like when i'm it, it can allow me to look at things more subjectively in the sense of like you know like i just feel like i'm going to play against murk more often or whatever right like i feel like that's what i feel like that's my credence towards the situation obviously if all the deck lists are submitted that's what the odds are around That I'm gonna play. Those are the probabilities I'm gonna play against Merktide region. Like I'm playing the Merktide deck. But if I feel like it's that way, and then I was wrong, I can say like I should have known better that like more people are playing this deck, or like aren't playing this deck, or like more people are playing this card or not playing this card. And then just making that distinction between what is the truth of it, like what are the facts mathematically, versus like what is it that I felt and what is it that I I thought, and making that separation for myself internally. I think is something that like makes it a lot easier to parse for me personally.
0: Yeah, I think that's really great. That's really interesting. I'm going to think a lot more about that. That is one where I wish I could have a conversation with you right now on the show, because I think that might be helpful for some listeners. But I think it would be a disservice to the topic. And maybe this is something that we need to come back to again in the future. It's really interesting. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Jessie on today, you're going to have to ask her. Some questions. Uh, it's really cool. We love the patrons. It's been really awesome to see the growth of that over the last year and some change. And just the community that's in there that's talking, you know, like there was some discussion about BNRs, and we had some people at the SCG this weekend, and there was some, you know, good conversation started, like not even just like on people and how they were playing decks, but like what did you learn from the SCG? And oh, I had a moment like that before for me. And so looking for like-minded people, that might be a really great place to check out. And you know, it helps support the show, it always be free, but that is helpful. Along those lines, we do have the uh CCMTG seasonal tournament. I forget what our name is for today, but I'm just gonna keep it a buck fifty on the show. Our, our tournament is coming back uh December 4th, which is a Sunday of this year. It is standard it is on arena and the melee event is up. So if you want to sign up for that, you can do that. If you are a diamond level patron, which is ten dollars, the exact same it takes to enter the tournament, you will get access to this for free. So if you're wanting to play the tournament, hey. Joining the Discord will get you free entry into that tournament and all these other benefits. You might as well just do that via patreon.com/slash/ccmtg. Another way to support the show is to go to our sponsor Game Grid Lehigh. GG uh, Lehigh helps run those tournaments. You know, provides all the pricing uh, for those events, which is super awesome. And it's just a great place to buy your cards. You can use code CCMTG10 to get 10 percent off. You'll find that note, uh, that code in the show notes down below. So make sure to go check them out. They're a great sponsor. We're so happy to have them on the show. And Abe, hey, I think it's time for our guest, Jesse. But now it is time for our main guests. We have a special guest on the show, a friend of ours, Jesse Robkin, better known on Twitter as Titty Pills. Jesse, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So Jesse, if you're someone who is maybe doesn't on social media bunch, and like, you know, like they're kind of getting back into magic. How would they know who
2: you are and like, kind of, who are you in magic? What do you do? Who am I? That's a great, like philosophical question. I would say I'm most known for um, the contributions I've made to the underworld breach combo stratagem in uh, in modern. In March, I top aided a, a SCG 5K with, at the time, is it breach? and. Afterwards wrote a rather lengthy deck guide on the, the deck uh, that got posted on TCG player and basically led to the deck being a more mainstream deck, especially as we made it through the summer and then notable SCG grinders, Ross Merriam and Corey Bowmeister picked up the deck and iterated on it basically that the the start of that whole thing in a lot of ways was that top eight in india indianapolis other than that you might have seen me at the top of the uh nrg leaderboard for season two <laughs> uh and apart from that oh i also i write for um Talarian Community College. So sometimes you may see my name at the end of videos there. And starting tomorrow, I am officially a regular contributor for channel Fireball. Yeah. My article on it's a deck guide for mono white humans in Pioneer, which I top aided an NRG recently with, is my first article, but I'll be writing roughly once a week for them going forward, which is very exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's those are the main places, I would say. Awesome. So when did you
0: start playing Magic?
2: I started like the very first time I played Magic was when I was like seven or eight or something. My older brother played a lot when he was in high school. He played like competitively. He introduced me to the game along with my dad who started playing back in the 90s. I grew up in Seattle. So, you know, local situation and didn't get like very into it. I was more of a Yu-Gi-Oh! kid until um, I would say the summer after graduating college or the, the fall after graduating college, which was um, the fall of 2018 with Guilds of Ravnica when I started playing standard because my brother had visited me in town in Chicago and we had gotten a box of Dominaria that we split together and played and I just got instantly hooked. And basically I've been playing ever since then to varying degrees.
0: Awesome. So you started, did you start competing relatively soon after that? Because I mean, Dominaria United was, a, we're looking at just about four years
2: I, regular dominaria not dominaria
0: oh yeah that's sorry i i meant to say regular dominaria i'm sure you did i just flubbed it you know when talking about dominaria i always say united (laughs) because i'm an ally of dominaria anyways uh that's about four years ago now four and a half so did you start competing soon after that like what was kind of your process in getting into competitive magic
2: my first comp Ariel event was a PPTQ at an LGS in town that I played about a month and a half after starting. And I top aided that with green, white angels, which was pretty cool. Um, and definitely like sparked my excitement for playing the game at like a more competitive level. And then I didn't play in another like comp REL event until about a year later, um, at an SEG Indianapolis in 2019. But I up leading up until that, I played a ton like at lgs is around chicago there's a few fairly large ones in chicago so i would play like three nights a week basically and that was my primary competitive outlet for a while
0: well that's exciting i mean so that's like a pretty big sort of jump when it comes to you know playing magic you know we it's a pretty short time frame when you think about it but it's extra short when you think about covid right like there just wasn't competitive magic in a real way for like about a let's say two years for the sake of conversation and so how did you start improving at magic because I mean. I, I think it's not a shock to any of our listeners, but like to write for a website like Channel Fireball is in of itself a pretty big like statement to how strong a player you are without even testimonial from like myself or abe like for listeners you and i work together uh, i would say on a lot of things really closely i i I, I was going so far to say we talk a couple times a week about strategy and that sort of thing especially if an event's coming up even more obviously that's really strong as long as the NRG leaderboard right like you mentioned and kind of alluded to the start of the show you completely crushed the season two and locked up their essentially players championship if players are used to the star city games format how did you really start improving at magic and kind of have this sort of um First at you know getting better at the game you know in such a small time frame
2: i would say the on-ramp started literally the first like event i went to at that lgs back in 2018 i played in like a guilds of ravnica pre-release and i got the boros pre-con or the boros whatever the pre-release kit and then week one i brought a boros equipment deck that was totally unplayable to like the standard thing and then the next week i brought like a boros mentor deck i had like figured out like the synergy involved with like the mentor mechanic week three i brought boros angels because i was like oh this is like the the like hot version of like these this color combo and then by the time the pbtq rolled around i was on selesnia angels which was like by far the better choice of those but honestly well, all that is to say, like, I'm a very fast learner. And so I have a tendency to not make the same mistake twice. And to like, I'm pretty observant. So I pay attention to things that are going wrong. So from like, let's say like the the, the start of events coming back after the onset of the pandemic, I played in the energy tournaments uh, around this time last year. And I was always X2, X3, just missing top eight. And I was getting somewhat frustrated by it. And Basically, I started to like pay attention to when I was losing and like why I was losing. And I started saying something I specifically noticed was um, I kept losing to like the same thing every time, which was my opponent doing something or playing like playing a card or making a play that I hadn't considered before that completely caught me off guard and would beat me like I would I would like counter like a fury that didn't matter against a four color player. And then pass the turn with just Dovin's Veto up. And then they Emercool me. And I'm like, oh, I I didn't even think. Like, this was before I was, like, introduced to, like, Emrakul as, like, a a sideboard card out of four color. And just, like, lots of plays like that. Or, like, the first time I got Pithy Needled off an Urza Saga. Like, these things would happen that would completely blow me out. I would lose the game. And I started to notice that, like, more than half the time I was losing it was to this type of stuff. And so I I made a goal around this time last year that I was going to start like I was going to stop I was like I will never lose to the same thing twice that was like a goal that I set for myself and so these days when I lose it's mostly due to like variance and occasionally to that sounds very like you know whatever but like I I don't lose to things I haven't considered very often anymore it still does happen sometimes but like I lose to just bad matchup variance or just an opponent purely like outplaying me not often to like just a total blowout of something I hadn't thought about. So that was like sort of the big change. Also the people I was surrounded with. So like when I started to get to know you, Mason, there was like, I remember you told me two things that really, well, there's one specific one that really stuck out of like, I asked you what, what you've noticed me do wrong when you watch me play. And I was like, you can like be as harsh as you want. And you said to slow down and to like think through my plays. Cause like oftentimes I would like, immediately go to like play a turn and do something and then be like oh I should have done that but I've already done the other thing and you said like you tend to find the right play after you've already made a play and if you take extra time to just stop and think about what you're doing you would find yourself doing a lot better and so I I took that to heart and there's like a specific example you gave of like one time I thought for like 30 seconds on a turn and then I typed in the like moto chat sorry thinking when like 30 seconds is a totally normal amount of time to like think about a turn. So yeah, uh, that's a big thing too. It was just like really like being intentional about what I was doing and not just like doing the first play that popped into my head.
0: That is really big. It is funny. I, I remember that scenario. I did not know how much that one had stuck out to. I don't think we had ever talked about that. The The one that I remember is we were playing, I think it was actually our first time hanging out on Discord together and I was playing Money Pile and you went into like e-witness bolt something. And I was like, oh, no, I have bigger plans for that, you know? Mm -hmm. And you were like, oh, and it like it just like you had obviously thought about like not playing your cards at that time before. But the idea that like, oh, this is so much value you pull so far ahead. And I was like, no, we can like fall behind a little bit. There are bigger and better things I could be doing with this. I remember that's one of the ones I remember you picking. Well, it's the first thing I remember you picking up and just immediately (laughs) applying. And I've seen you do it over and over and over again. But that is one of the ones that really sticks out to me.
2: The like idea that like your cards can like getting juicing the absolute most value or the most like making your cards do the absolute most that they can when you can afford to do so. And, and, which is, I think a very like limited mindset, like limited the format, not limited the size of your brain, but, uh, <laughs> uh but yeah, like just making sure that like you're not just like trading your cards one for one. If you have the opportunity to like do more out of them, that's something too that definitely improved my game. Abe,
0: do you remember when you first started like these sort of moments of like understanding that like hey there are like deeper things than just using my mana and like making profitable trades or whatever
1: for me it's very different because like the time where i really started to improve the most was at a time where um it's actually because of the cards of probe and standard through not only playing my side of every game i was playing but through playing like at that time like you'd see your opponent's hand and i'd write it all down Be like okay i just know what my opponent's script is for the next like five turns because it's standard and like the card's is just more expensive. It's not all going to happen all at once. And then like watching someone who was actually good, like use that information and then like deviate from it. It's like, why didn't they just cast like restoration angel at the end of the turn? It's like, Oh, because five turns later, this restoration angel that pinched my mana league for like this long, it's like, Oh, you can just like the game is a bigger picture at, at like a lot of times. And like, you know, like they were planning out every interaction they were trying to, every exchange they were trying to have instead of just like, doing that and emulating that was something that really helped me like at that time go from a level of someone who would like, Oh, you know, I'd like, like you were saying where you'd like, you'd like five, two or five, three, like some large event and be like, I did pretty well. And like, you know, maybe I could have done better if I was a little luckier, but like, there has to be more to it than that. And like finding the room for that personally was something that like was game changing, especially another thing that happened to me around that time was, uh, reading next little magic. I don't know if you've ever read it, uh, Jesse. It's no, basically just a really long Patrick Chapin article, but something that he says, and, and I think it's like a really good book if you want to try to improve magic that is really echoed by your sentiment is like 99% of the game or whatever, like 95% at the very highest level is actually just played above the board, right? Like it's just the cards that you're dealt and making sure you're making the right exchanges and really focusing on using your cards well. Like your technical play matters so much more than your the mind tricks, you know, like, what playmat am I using? Like, the Hallowed Fountain playmat with my mono-red deck, or like, you know, like, dropping a Rhino token on the table when I'm playing Hammer, or whatever. Like, things like that are just so... Bringing so your much action <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, they're so much less important than playing the games as well as you can, and focusing all of your energy on game on the games is how you really improve, and so, like, to hear that that is what you attribute, you know, this, like, a very, very impressive not only season, but, like, to accomplish what you have and get to the place that you're at in Magic within, you know, only seriously, like, four years with two of them pandemic years. Like, the fact that so much of your mental energy has been focused on, like, just the gameplay really adds up to me.
2: Mm-hmm. It's funny you talk about Gitpro being your sort of introduction to that, because I that's the other thing I forgot about is when I first started playing Modern, I played a lot of Jund, and I think it, it somewhat, I think, hamstrung my like ability to improve at a certain point. Cause eventually I, I let John go as all people must do one day. And uh, I, and I realized not this past summer, but the summer before that I was like, I think I might've like actually hampered my own playing development by operating under perfect information all the time. The fact that I played like a discard deck is like my primary thing. It was like really useful for like getting a feel for the format and like starting to learn other people's game plans. But then when I stopped having thoughts in my deck, uh, I, I stopped having any clue about like, you know, what my opponents were doing or planning. And I had to sort of retrain myself that there's a moment. I remember watching you stream Mason, when you were playing against Moth, I, I believe it was against Yawgmoth and you, um, I can't remember what deck you were playing, but your opponent basically at one point, like tapped a land or tapped like a, a creature to cast a spell, rather than tap their um, silent clearing. I guess so. It wouldn't wouldn't have been Yawgmoth, but they had a, a like a manador can play, and they had a, one land open, and it was a pain, it was a uh, like canopy land, and they tapped their creature to cast a spell, and you were like, why would they do that? And you tanked for like two minutes to figure out like why they wouldn't just leave their creature on tap and just take the extra damage, and then you landed on they must have dismember, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that, being like, whole like, holy cow!" I, I, I would never have like made that connection. Um, but they, I guess, like were playing around; their creature dying, and they still wanted to be able to hold up their interaction spell or something. And then you ended up being right, and that that taught me a lot, just like about anticipating and like thinking about when your opponent makes a play. Don't just take that play at face value. Like, think about why they, what is in their hand that would lead them to do that.
0: So you know, kind of in this vein, we kind of you went in here and put some, you know, kind of tips and things that were helpful for you here in our show notes to go over. And I'd love to kind of go over them, just have a conversation with us, you know, and kind of have you spirit. Uh, it looks like your next one here. And I'm interested to hear about this is playing better decks and cutting the pet cards as someone who plays breach a bunch. When are you going to do this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you see, So Mason, uh, for the listeners at home, Mason really likes to pretend that breach isn't great. And, uh, he's, uh, he's highly critical of, of a deck that, um, uh, I don't know if he would even put it in the seat here. Like, he might put it lower than that. So that's a a common sort of antagonistic thing that happens with the two of us. Um, Abe,
0: would you like to ask where I I normally put the deck and Jesse says rank them? Would you like to ask the question so I have a moment to defend myself? All right, Mason. I normally say top three. I said top three (laughs) until today's banning every time. And Jesse would be like, so it's not number one, huh? I think it's a little low on the tier list. It's number three, huh? Number two, huh? Anyway anyways it's fine we're not
2: gonna no no it's fine keep
0: going (laughs) i got my piece Um, out
2: (laughs) but honestly though like i was unwilling to play breach for a while like i don't know if like i i called you on my way home from nrg fort wayne i believe it was after having played breach in a 10k and it did not go very well for me and i was just like i can't like i'm just gonna play four color at these bigger tournaments because it's just like i basically got really disillusioned by the deck and, and i i sort of went hard in the opposite direction from playing pet decks or playing pet cards and being like I'm going to play the absolute best thing for this for any tournament that I like find myself in and I still do largely follow that especially if I like really care about winning however I think what was funny was when Ross and Corey started picking up the deck I was pretty reluctant to believe them that like it was actually strong and like in the metagame it took me like you know it took them basically doing well with the deck a few like like over the course of a few tournaments before I was like all right fine I'll play it in this like 5k in St. Louis and then I played it there and it was like the deck just went like it just did its thing and I got to the finals and I was like oh this deck is actually just strong right now and then the next weekend like Corey and Ross both uh top forward the uh SEG with it and so at that point i was like okay i'm finally like back fully on board of like this is a strong deck but it took me a while so like be willing to like accept that because i was so sort of st- strong like held the belief that like you shouldn't play pet cards pet decks at tournaments you want to win like pretty strongly anyway it's funny that you brought that up <laughs>
0: <laughs> interesting yeah that is a hard one. And one day Abe will get there with hammer, but we do have a <laughs> lot of that.
1: These- on banning. No
0: way. <laughs> we'll get there soon as well. Listeners. So one of the things you put here, and I love to hear more about this as well Is your stop focusing on results and start focusing on playing every match. And uh, I feel like we had a lot of conversation about this when we first met as well. So I'm curious to see what was this kind of like, and like, how has this changed everything and how has like focused on the process versus the results, like helped you improve your results. <laughs>
2: It's really funny looking at this list of things and how many of them you had like a direct hand in <laughs> instilling in me. <laughs> but yeah, well, it first started with like accepting that leagues are complete noise. Like you could like five o league with a deck, and then like I five would a couple leagues with hammer in like February, and then was super excited to bring it to the energy, and then I o two dropped. And not that hammer isn't good contrary to what i still think it's a good deck but like I, I i would get really surprised when i would like do well in leagues and then it wouldn't translate to results i think leagues are useful for like being slightly better than goldfishing like <laughs> you know like knowing you, you have like an actual human being th- on the other side like that's what they are valuable for but in terms of like actually assigning like i would happily register a deck I two three with in a league if the deck felt like you know felt like it was powerful and you know what i mean so that was a big one and then the sort of next step beyond that was accepting that like sometimes tournaments just don't go your way you like lose the matchup lottery and you like or you make a stupid play or or really anything and like you if you play well and you lose that's a that's a positive outcome whereas if you don't play well and you win don't let yourself get tricked into thinking it doesn't matter, you know, like, like, so that was a big one for me. It was just like starting to like become a lot more Zen about any given tournament result. I sort of ironically coincided with my tournament results becoming really good, but like, it doesn't phase me if I lose or win. I'm just like, that's not what matters. What matters is like the, the circumstances I could control and I've gotten a lot better at controlling the vast majority of the circumstances I can control. Abe,
0: was that something... Because I feel like this thing you're really good at, too, right? It's kind of like, it is what it is, right? Like, you know, sometimes you're going to go to the tournament and you're going to get, like, ninth on breakers and sometimes you're going to win the tournament and sometimes you're going to 4-4 and, like, you know, there's all these things, but the tournament is what the tournament is. Was there anything that kind of helped you sort of get over that hump as well and kind of get to the same spot Jesse's talking about? Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you two are very much aligned in that.
1: For me, it was actually... Like oddly enough, just learning about traditional Stoicism in a philosophy class I took at community college, where I was like, they're like, yeah, you, like it was just the entire idea and philosophy of like, yeah, you should just focus all of your energy things you can control. Like, you can frame things a lot, like yourself to to like try to minimize the amount of like, like the goal for Stoicism is like you should be trying to minimize the amount that your negative emotions control you and that like you're trying you like there's a bunch of tactics about like people say it's like to not feel anything it's like no like it's to control your emotional responses to the things that are negative negative. and so like for me it was like oh if i just like never tilted i would be a better magic player because this is how i thought about everything back then when i was like out of high school and like in community college playing a bunch of magic all the time was was that and so I was like okay i'm just going to like spend all of my energy in the same vein of like i'm going to focus on my technical play i'm going to focus on things i can control like down to the T and like, that's where I'm going to agonize. And then like the, that process is what's going to lead to me having results. And if I'm obsessing over the results or whatever, I'm just never going to like get that. And so I think that just in general, because of the the fact that each match of magic is independent from one another, right? Like me winning two 0 over like someone in a league or like me f- winning 10 matches in a row in magic online does not mean I'm going to then continue and win like 10 more matches in a row. It's like, no, each of those matches are just independent data points. And ultimately what matters is focusing on what you can control so that you can have those outcomes. Like I think Haynes said it best of like every time he sits down at a match, he thinks about it as like the most likely outcome of the match is that I will win. And my job is to like do what I can to manifest that reality. and that outlook is one that like really makes it easier to divorce yourself from the result because you're just thinking about how do I win this game? Mm-hmm. And and that wins a lot more games than thinking of like, Oh yeah, I'm like running hot, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just more valuable for your, for your results.
2: That's yeah. so badass. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. The, Han- the, I, I, most likely outcome is that I'm going to win. <laughs> yeah. Hands a real one.
0: Yeah. If you haven't heard the Hain episode, you should definitely go and check that one out. Uh, it is definitely one of the, uh, interesting interviews we've had in, in a good way. There, there are a lot of things like that that are really cool. Uh, but yeah, I I really like this point. I think it really uh kind of in a lot of ways. I think all these really kind of go to the always improving mindset, which is something we really talk about on this show a lot. Jesse is that you know there's something you can always be working on. In magic you can always be getting better at. And I think a lot of these are like you having your always improving segment of the show uh distilled down into these like kind of key points for listeners, and us going over them. And I think that's Really great for listeners, especially when they see it in action. Uh, but we still have a couple more. I want to talk about this next one here, which is a little bit out of order for you. But you put your mental game there, and I think this kind of goes straight into the stoicism. What do you mean by that? Because you you put refocusing between rounds, and so I'm kind of curious. Like, what does this mean?
2: I think that, like, no exaggeration, my mental game is the primary contributor to why I've like had a pretty good summer uh, results wise. I think that it's the thing that puts me like a level above most of the other players in the room where like between each round, I take time to stop. I literally will like put my head down in my arms and just like close my eyes and like breathe and count to 10 and, and try to focus on nothing but the number in my head of what number I'm on. And if I like catch myself, my mind wandering I like bring it back and then I repeat the number I was on. I don't let myself skip it. And then when I get to 10, I open my eyes and all of a sudden I see the room clearer, and I just like, my my brain is clearer. And so it's literally like mindfulness or like meditation between rounds. I used to do it like a lot more religiously. Now it's a, Now I don't have to as much, but that was something I did a lot to just make sure that I'm not letting myself, if I'm like doing poorly, letting that get to me. And then if I'm doing like, well, I also don't let that get to me. I'm like, I like- I sit down at my next round. What matters is that I'm like taking each card as they come. And I'm really like in the moment. And I think that a lot of players would benefit from not like, for instance, tweeting out their record every single time, you know, they have a, a, they play a match. It's like, Oh, I'm, I'm four one. Oh, now I'm four two. Ah, dang. You know, like, don't, don't do that. And like, be careful about how much time you're spending just like between rounds, like talking about your last match and like how, oh man, I got so unlucky or, oh man, like I I had such a great play or whatever. It's fine to do some of that, but but just like be aware of like where it's sending your brain as you are sort of engaging in that kind of mid-round discussion and stuff like that. And think about like, as you're sitting down for your next match, are you grounded and level again? Like staying completely level emotionally is the most important thing I think about like making sure that you're making the optimal plays most often
0: the last one here is kind of i got a lot of it comes like kind of encapsulates down to spending time thinking and what exactly are you talking about when you're doing that i know you mentioned earlier in the show how we had a conversation i said you just need to slow down is it like that what exactly are you trying to go for with this one
2: yeah so there's a lot of opportunities i think to think <laughs> uh in the middle of a match or in the middle of a, t- a game that can improve your win rate which is essentially like Basically, you can create your own bullet point list of like the things that are important to you. But like, I think a lot about like, before I like make a mulligan decision, I'm like, okay, with this current hand, it's not just the hand I have, but also like the fraction of of the cards I'm likely to draw as the like what I'm considering keeping. And if there's a pretty, if like more than half my deck is good draws with like a, a specific hand, I'm more likely to keep even if the hand itself doesn't necessarily have every tool. At my, that I need in order to win. So that's something also thinking in the middle of a game, what you might need to draw and like, how, how do you win from a spot if you're behind? I had a, um, someone in the feature, the like person who runs the feature matches for NRG, like the person who's like in the, at the table with us, she was saying, uh, <laughs> she said to me after a match one time that she was like, very impressed. She was always very impressed by like how, much I never seem to be t- totally out of it. Like I'm, I'm, like my ability to like come back from behind and things like that. And a part of that is just like a pretty strong understanding of like what are the cards in my deck that will move this game back in my favor, and uh, how do I position myself so that if I draw those cards, I win. Like what plays do I make so that if I draw the right cards, it brings me back? Because there's only a certain subset of cards you could draw that make you win the game and you don't draw them you're going to lose regardless of what you did whereas if you don't play as if you need to draw those cards and you do draw those cards then uh sometimes they aren't enough to bring you back so you just have to be like pretty mindful of like playing not just the turn you're playing but also like the next few turns or whatever and then another thing is just like I talked a little bit about this already, but just like thinking about like why your opponents are making the things they're doing or like anticipating their plays. I found myself, I've gotten a lot better at just like knowing what my opponent will do before they do it and being like, Oh, they're probably going to cast a rattle chains post-combat here or like, Oh, this is like very likely a like curious obsession turn or whatever. Then thinking specifically about a very specific match I played (laughs) in uh, at an energy in the top eight against mono blue spirits. But you know, any, any number of things like that, like, Another thing is just like asking yourself the question of like, how do you, the, this is a, a classic sort of trio of questions, but how do you, how do you win from here? How do you lose from here? And then like, just what is your opponent like, and then asking those questions for your opponent. Like, like, what are they thinking about? What are they planning to do with their turn, basically? Uh, so, those are like the big ones. Something mm-hmm. I
1: really like that you brought up there, and just in general, like playing towards your outs, right? Like, we talk a lot about like plan beats no plan or whatever. And like part of that is this idea of like, there's so many games that players with no plan will lose where they might have won otherwise with the way that the cards run out. If they had like just made decisions towards understanding like, Oh, I could just draw like, like I could just draw the like two in my four color deck, just the two lightning bolts off the top of my deck. And like, I could have gotten them to six and that was the only way I would have won the game or like, you know when you're playing a combo deck like breach it's like yeah i guess i just have to draw this and this and they don't have like a piece of interaction and then i get to combo off and sure it means that i have to just allow them to be killing me in three turns instead of like using like i'm using my spell bomb to like draw a card now instead of like bounce something and like save some life or like protect some creature i have in play because you're thinking about the end game while you're making decisions in the middle of the game it allows you to like gain those percentage points in play and i think that's like incredibly valuable and something that a lot of players especially like when they're growing like takes a long time for them to learn So it's uncomfortable when you think about the game and especially when you learn like oh yeah i like should avoid getting two for one or like i should get good value out of my spells or like you know you don't want to like die to a pump spell or like a burn spell so you should like preserve your life total in some spots like prolonging the game versus actually playing to win the game is a very, very important distinction to make. And it's one that I think is really important to highlight out of what you said.
2: Also, um, the two thoughts that I had about what you just said, number one is like the lesson that I really had to instill in myself is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Like, for instance, when I see people play breach a lot, I see them just like making a construct because they're on the chapter two of of the thing. I believe I make construct tokens much less than the average breach breach player because uh like sometimes that is the thing you need to win the game. And there's a lot of times when like the way you're pl- you're going to win the game is most likely with underworld breach and whether or not you have a construct is less important than like whether or not you've like cast that expressive iteration or or used your mana in some other way. So that's that's one big thought. Then the other thing is the uh other sort of like lesson that I I've, I've started to like in like li- uh, think about a lot. There's a, I believe it's a Sam Black article about the difference between Elvish Visionary and Elderfang Disciple, or like the difference between like a big game and a small game that I think everyone should read. But specifically, there's this idea of like, uh, a question I will ask myself a lot is like, if this game ends soon, which of us is, like? it's a bit like who's the beatdown, who's not, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's like, if this game ends in the next few turns, which player is the one who's most likely to win? And if the game lasts like eight more turns, which player is most likely to win? And then the answer to that question changes how I use my cards and what I value. If it's like I have some sort of inevitability, like for instance, uh, I was watching Andrew Ellenbogen pilot breach the other night on his stream and he was playing against a uh, hammer and his opponent had a, a hammer on a guy and was attacking with it. And his, Ellenbogen's only blocker was, was the NS Per Sentinel he had stolen from his opponent off of Raghavan, and he was trying to decide if he was supposed to block, he was at 20 at the time. Relevant piece of information is he had an expressive iteration or two in his hand, and he had an Emery going with a uh, a Mishra's Bauble. He also had an Aether's on, I believe, although he didn't have the mana up to activate it. And ultimately he decided to take 10 or 11 or whatever because uh, Hammer deals damages in big chunks, so being at 20 isn't that different than being at 11. And then a couple turns later, his opponent got a ginger brute in play and activated it to make it unblockable and then put a hammer on it and killed him. And it's easy to say in retrospect, oh, well, if you had blocked, you, uh, you wouldn't have died there. But what's more valuable is understanding why it was correct to block with that Esper Sentinel, which is that because cards were not a choke point for him, he had... He was drawing two cards a turn with, ba- with Emory and Bobble. He had expressive iteration to like go digging if he needed to. He had the like late game inevitability. The thing he needed to make sure he didn't have happen was die, like get cheesed out basically. So I, th- I will ask myself a lot when I'm playing a game, like am I going to win this game if it lasts a long time? No. Okay, well, in that case, I need to be like super aggressive. I need to take risks. I need to like do everything I can to end this game. Versus my opponent going to be the one that that wins if the game is short. Yes, okay. Therefore, I'm more willing to like throw a few resources away because I'm more likely to recoup that value, and I will win if the games extend. So that's like a a really big picture thing that I try to like um, keep in mind.
0: Uh, we have some questions from our patrons. You know, if you're a patron of the show, you get to ask us questions each week, and we have a guest. You get to ask the guest questions. The first question is from. Dexagos, Ghost, they said, what metas would you see blue, red, breach underperforming in?
2: Breach is like, well, number one, the, the biggest answer would be something that makes Eldrazi Tron a real deck again. Uh, because that deck's a nightmare. Outside of that, it's anytime the meta is defined by um sort of delvery type strategies where you like have A lot of pressure and then a lot of really effective disruption. Like, so if Rhinos was like the best deck, that would be kind of scary. If Jund was a good deck in the format, that would be really bad. Grixis Death Shadow, another good example of like decks that like both have a lot of disruption, have like a strong clock, and also are very efficient with their mana and don't have a lot of air. Murktide used to be a really scary matchup for this reason, but the fact that that deck has a lot of air and the fact that like we have Ledger Shredder now and Teferi, it's sort of that's a bit of an exception to this rule. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the biggest thing I would say.
0: Just out of curiosity, is Recto Scam a matchup you're anxious about playing?
2: Yeah, I'm not super happy to see that on the other side of the table. Cause so Douthi Voidwalker is kind of the perfect answer to our, our strategy where like, not only are they taking our graveyard away, but, but some of the best cards that we can draw to like get out of it, like expressive iteration or whatever, if they then cast it for us, like, or cast it, that's like pretty bad. For us, um, and it's also attacking for three every turn unblockably. And then they have Blood Moon to answer our sagas and plenty of disruption to break up our more synergy-oriented deck. So it's definitely not a matchup I'm like super excited to play against. However, it's not unwinnable. Saga is quite strong against them if they don't have the Blood Moon. And, you know, if they discard a bunch of cards from your hand, you top deck a Breach. Oftentimes that's enough to win. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be thrilled if Scam became like the de facto best deck in the format.
0: Cool. Sorry, I'm just buying my Dothy Voidwalkers. Uh, The next one is from Nick. They asked, what's your favorite non-magic related event to go to?
2: So outside of magic, I am... uh, a filmmaker, theater artist. So I really like seeing plays. I really like going to see films in theaters and especially like film screenings and things like that. So I would say that's like the biggest thing. Awesome. And I had one that didn't put in here that
0: someone asked me as a patron in person. And their question to you was, what was the thing you would tell Jesse from a year ago about magic? Obviously you can't tell her, you know, buy any stocks, do this with your life. You can only talk magic to Jesse. You have 30 seconds. What do you tell past Jesse?
2: I would tell her to slow down think through her stuff and don't stress so much about the top eights you miss or like think more about how you can control your controlling what you can control. Basically. I think that's the biggest thing.
0: Awesome. Well, it was great to have you on the show today, Jesse, we're going to have you here for our little YouTube question that we have each week as well, but I didn't want to have, you know, a proper Sent off. I think this was, was a great episode, and I hope that these little tips and things you talked about are going to be applicable and are things that if listeners haven't already thought of, they, think something they can apply to their game, and if maybe this is something they've been working on, you know, we're thinking that they're, they're pretty good at, this was helpful for kind of reinforcing those things, we're helping them go that little last bit of the distance, so thank you for coming on the show to talk about those sort of things. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So, the elephant in the room, the thing we've been waiting until the end of the episode to talk about, we wanted to have Jesse on here as well, since Jesse does play so much modern and is so in tune with the format is today there was a BNR announcement and the BNR announcement was two things. We had a Meathook Massacre Band in Standard, which I'm sure we will cover in greater detail later. I think the general consensus is that it, something had to go from black and this is a pretty reasonable thing to go, especially given its price. Uh, and second in modern, we lost on the Sky Nomad. Abe, we really got, as you put it, the buzzer beater. We had our four color episode last week, Jesse. Uh, we finally did it. <laughs> so we really really did a great job of timing that episode uh it's a good thing we did not swap the order. thank you yeah i'll just take the lead on the Yorian thing for a second and then i'll throw it to y'all because you know i talked to both y'all a bunch about magic and i'm sure you know a bunch of these things but the Yorian ban does dramatically affect the four color decks um i know there's a lot of conversation right now uh on twitter about like is four color still a deck is it not i believe that it is still a deck i do think that the Inevitability that you had with Thiorion and the ability to catch back up in card advantage or drown your opponent in card advantage is no longer there. Nor is the ability to have this four-five that you just kill your opponent with. I, I've talked on the show a lot in passing. I mentioned it last week, and I've d- talked about it a bunch in coaching. But essentially, four color became a Delver deck at a certain point, where somewhere along the line, you put the Yor on your hand and you just had so many kill spells that you would just kill your opponent with a four or five over three turns. And like that's basically what happened. Your opponents would fetch shock a bunch because there's no reason you're a control deck, just cast their spells. And then the four or five mattered. So, literally, if we had a free four or five flyer that I could have in my eighth zone every game, I would gladly play that card. And I think the deck would be amazing. Uh, as is, we have to solve for that problem. And it's going to be an interesting problem to solve for. I open the floor up to y'all. Abe, what do you think about the BNR and everything? What do you think about that sort of stuff? And uh, how do you think modern moves from this point onward?
1: Yeah, I think, and I was actually talking to you about this when they first announced there was going to be a BNR about like why, and I've talked about this on Twitter, but it's been something that really interests me because I think it's something the magic community as a whole has not found a good way to put into words or quantify But there's a real value that is gained in a a large trade-off for consistency from going 60 to 80 cards. And Yorion is like such a superb payoff for doing this where like you have access to a larger finite resource pool of like, oh, I can just play like, not only can I fetch all of my fetchable lands I need so my mana base works way more often when I have heavy amounts of fetches, I also get to have as many copies as I want of a lot of my most important cards. So the redundancy I have on them or like the ability I have to assemble an end game involving them is much more difficult for my opponent to disrupt. And I think that what we'll see in the coming like weeks and months as people try to like fill the void of like, what does four color look like without a card like Yorion is that not only is it like, okay, yeah, being able to not worry about like what your win condition is outside of if Yorion if was just like field of the dead, right? This like unbeatable inevitability engine, or like you replace it with like, I'll play like scapeshift and Dryad or something, right? You find some other kill condition that is very, very compact on your card quantity. It still won't replace a huge part of the game, which is that it always had inevitability because it could just fit more raw resources than the opponent had options to answer. Like there are matchups like blue-white or like decks that were trying to control the raw amount of things four color was doing that I think will no longer like four color will no longer be able to out muscle on that stage and they'll have to like they'll actually be behind to the generic answers of like playing a bunch of counter spells or playing a bunch of just one for one interactions backed up by like card draw where before I felt like they were ahead of it because not only did they have Yorion to be able to like keep up with with the card economy but they also like can be run out of. Run out of things. And I think that that value that was there of that insane inevitability of just having twenty cards worth of additional resources in your deck is something that like will start to feel. And whether or not it like actually is that so much as um like the cards are also very good. I think it'll still be able to compete. But I think that something that happened locally a lot was that there are people who like would play blue white or would play jund or would play a slew of fair decks that weren't like merktite or whatever and they could not play that anymore because of four color in the field. It was just too difficult to handle the fact that like, sometimes they'll just have two run and sixes and you fight over the first one or like, you know, eventually they will get to this point where they lock, lock up the game uh, in the form of either card advantage or like to ferrying you out. And that changing alongside also having to put in cards, actually win the game in your deck is four color. I think we'll see like a very, very large shift in what a lot of the, the matchup spreads that matter are um, that like, or that used to not matter, that start to matter. And then that will change yep. a lot of how the four color deck is. But I think the ban overall is really good. I've said it for a long time. I think the companions overall were just like not a great idea. Um, and it would be very interesting to see if the problem really is that there's just all these absurd cheap Planeswalkers and card advantage spells. That you can just play together and like get a two for one off every card in your deck, or if it's you know more more move forward by something like Yorion.
0: Jesse, do you have any thoughts about the Yorion band slash like you know we can kind of open this up to modern general because I think you know a lot of people agree companions are a mistake. The four color deck was very very good. No matter where you landed on four color, some people thought it was overrated. Some people thought you know it's the best deck by a mile. Everyone and had to admit at some point that the Yorion deck was at least good. So it's obvious that's going to change the format a lot because that is no longer there to put pressure on people. So how do you feel like the format moves with that gone? And that also being, you know, one of the better matchups for a deck like Breach, for example. So it's pretty interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Get the Titty Pills exclusive.
2: First and foremost, I'm very happy about this ban. I agree with Abe that I hate companions as a mechanic. And I think I fundamentally don't like the impact that they can have on a game, on a metagame where they're good. I think specifically with Modern, That the four-color blink deck as we know it is 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 gone. I think four-color control, where it's just you play a bunch of divinations and a bunch of removal. That deck I at first thought maybe was gonna be fine, but I am playing I've played a little bit of it already on Magic Online, and I'm finding there's definitely like not having that inevitability at the end of the game is like a pretty real downside. You flood more. Uh, and just having an Omnath in play is less impactful and it's harder to like actually win the game and it's harder to ha- like, sort of c- like if your opponent has a bunch of stuff going on, it's a lot harder to answer all those things I found. And so because of that, I think, I, I do think f- like a four color deck is still going to be good. Ren and six is still the most powerful card in modern, like Omnath is still a really strong card. Express iteration, These things are all good still. I just am not sure it's going to look the way that um, we think it's going to look. I know, I think Abe, you brought up the idea of like escape shift, bring to light deck. I think that has a lot of potential. I think four color elementals with risen reef has a lot of potential. And then I think like some sort of domain style deck, like what aspiring spike has been playing also has potential. I think these decks are all significantly worse than the, uh, the Yorion deck. And I think it's, my my current opinion is that the Orion deck will not exist as a 60-card version in Modern, or at least will not be a, a very significant player in the format. As far as how it impacts the rest of the meta, I think Hammer, Yaw, uh, Hammer Murktide, and Rhinos are like the big winners, Mots to some extent, and I think Living End gets worse. I think Blue-White Control, uh, which is a baby of mine, is uh, officially a reasonable choice at least for the foreseeable future um and i'm thinking specifically like a chalice main deck version of the deck i think chalice of the void is probably pretty good right now and as far as breach goes um yes blink was like a positive matchup i don't think it was as good as like ross and Corey say it is but it was like i I was never super excited when i was sitting across Yorion. i felt like i was likely to win or I, i was like technically more likely to win than lose but those games are so difficult to navigate and you you have to play really well against them in a way that you don't necessarily have to against some of the other decks in the format. Uh, so I'm I'm going to be excited to not play against them in future tournaments. Also the, the decks that I mentioned, like Hammer and Murktide becoming stronger is really good for Breach right now is my opinion. So I think that like if you rated the ban on a scale of zero to 10 in terms of how, much impacted breach where like zeros like it's a negative thing 10 is like it's a positive thing and five is like no change i would put this at like a six or a seven um so it's a slight it's a slight boost for breach but ultimately i'm just happy to see that expressive iteration still in the format
1: something i just wanted to say that i really liked about the ban in general is that like you were saying like blue white is a deck people can play more now or like the fact that they touched Yorion and not one of the like actual cards you would be excited to like build your deck around or put into your deck, especially with the large amount of like really powerful cards that have changed the face of modern over the last like modern horizon sets. Like you can still like, if you're playing blue, White, like you still have solitude, the the, the most important like interactive pillars in the format are still the same. The rules of engagement are still the same outside of whatever Yorion provided. And I think that if you're someone who's thinking about this band, like, and you don't know how it really affects you for yorion to go i would say that it all it actually does is just remove your four color magic from the format and like you can still play all those powerful cards or still the same kind of strategy that four color was playing you just might find it better to use different tools or like you have to make different tradeoffs and sacrifices because your deck's going to be a little worse but you can still do all the things and for a lot of decks nothing really changes foundationally, because no one's... Your matchup against something isn't really changing. It's just that this matchup no longer exists very cleanly. Like, I'll still be worried about the boy at matchup as Hammer. Like, the beating Solitude and beating beating those interactive spells is still important. Or, like, beating Rhinos is still important. They're still going to be doing their thing, but not to the degree of, like, normally there's a ban where it's like, okay, well now this strategy is, like, the new thing on top, because all of the same players are still, like, very relevant The that.
0: Yeah, I think that was actually, that. Like, is perfectly where I was going to say before, which is some of the things I'm most excited about are the things that 4Color has completely invalidated that I think have legs. So like in going in reverse order of like most extreme to most reasonable, like something like teamer reclamation or 4Color reclamation is something I'm like very interested in doing. And like that's something I'm going to do like when we are done recording here, probably where it's like trying to do something that's so over the top. It was so weak against what 4Color is doing for so many reasons from there, to fairy three to endings to bindings. It was just counter spells too much to try and do something like that. And it wasn't worth the squeeze, but like now there's some room in there. And then there are things like, I actually think, and this is like the thing I get laughed at a bunch for saying, but I think the Gruul mid range deck is like actually very good in modern and has been for a while, but just there was no point in playing it. Cause it was like this weird value deck and it was not as good as four color. And so Gruul with like, the devoted jury combo in it is like I think actually good. So that's like another thing. But then there are some more reasonable choices. Like I think Racto Scam was the one of the biggest winners today. I think that deck just fundamentally lined up so poorly against four color that a lot of the reason we saw Scam do well is because four color went on a decline because four color players started inbreeding for the mirror a bunch. Other decks started rising up like Indomitable Creativity and Breach that put the four color deck more in place. And uh, since those things were happening. Scam was able to go up. And with nothing like that in the format, and you can just be this deck that like gets underneath somebody, disrupts them, and kills them really quickly. I think that's really strong. So stuff like that and Jun, like the saga deck we saw Soul Maka get second and lose to a handsome gentleman at Dreamhack Dallas with. I think that's another one that's like, oh, this is like really good interacts and it can go long, but it was totally invalidated by Four Color. In the same way we all mentioned how typically and abandoning the rules of engagement change a lot and as such it's like well yeah that's how things used to be but now we're like living in this world it's like a different world but we still need to beat the same threats and the same answer cards and a lot of those decks just could not beat the answer density that four color had in combination with a Yorion. so i am very intrigued to see what happens with that and i think people are not to say y'all are but i think a lot of people on Twitter are underestimating how much those decks could become players in the format and how much things shift. If like, if Rakdos, Scam, or Jun decks become viable, the types of decks around that change dramatically in the format. Where like, Indomitable Creativity probably does not succeed in a world where like, you know, Scam is like one of the best, if not the best deck, and vice versa. Not to even mention Creativity losing four colors is a good matchup. So super exciting i am personally so excited to listen to some of our favorite podcasts on you know of our friends of the show like dominari's judgment game podcast i'm really excited to hear their episodes this week hopefully this band conversation was good enough for y'all we know that uh it wasn't as probably long as the other ones you heard but also you know variety is the spice of life if you want to find abe where can they go abe you can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings if
1: you're someone who is interested in learning the ways of the hammer now that your worst matchup is uh next to the format i do offer coaching and i also offer coaching for like many many uh dex narc types you know I- i'm I'm very interested in helping people improve magic so feel free to drop me a line if it's something you want
0: jesse if someone wants to find you and all your stuff where can they go
2: um you can find me on twitter at uh titty pills t-i-double-d-y p-i-double-l-s that's one place. If you want to see the videos I write for the professor at the Tularean Community College, you can find that on his uh, YouTube page. And then if you want to read my strategy articles, you can check out Channel Fireball. Um, Some of them will likely be behind the CFP Pro paywall. Uh, I'm not sure what number of them. I don't really have any control over that. And those are the main places. Keep an eye out. There might be more places coming soon. We'll see. If you want to find me,
0: you can find me over at Twitter at Mason E. Clark. You can find me at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. You can find me each week at Card Kingdom. You can find me here on the show each week. And I normally don't shout this out. It's a newer thing, too. And I kind of hadn't planned to shout it out on the show, but I did launch a Patreon. So it's Patreon. I think it's Mason slash Mason Clark. If you go to patreon.com slash Mason Clark, you find me. It's on my Twitter. That is really a hub where I'm moving the coaching stuff. So I, I normally mentioned here on the show at this point, how if you want to do coaching to reach out to me via Twitter or email, you can still do that sort of way. But I baked in a coaching discount into the Patreon. So if that's something you're looking for. I'm kind of hoping to facilitate all of that into one place. Um, so this is going to be my one time where I mentioned my personal Patreon on the show. That is a way to do that. If you want to get coaching or something like that, that's a good way. You can still do it. And all the other means we talked about in the past, Twitter DMs, my email, eclark at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, which will always be free, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. It's a big help for the show. It makes it go on and make everything a lot cooler. We get to have guests and do that sort of fun stuff. Uh, you also want to check out the rest of the network. We have Common Knowledge, which is an all-popper podcast. And we have Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. That is one of the best limited podcasts out there right now. It's so great to hear Sam's thoughts on everything. And with Brother Who are starting up, Abe, I get to do my shout-out for Sam's favorite thing, which is the before the set drops, before a draft, what is the draft archetype going to look like? And then we get to go back and look at it at the end of the format. I'm so excited to to go back and re-listen to the Dominaria United version of that episode. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Criticism, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of CC MTG.